2: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of
1: America NA, member FDSE.
3: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 14th. 2017. On this week's show, Johnette Howard will join us to talk about the NFL's decision to suspend Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott for six games for domestic violence, despite Elliott never getting arrested or charged with a crime. Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times will also be with us to assess the rise of 20-year-old Sasha Zverev, who looks like the guy who could finally end the era of the Big Four in men's tennis. And Mike Schur of Fire Joe Morgan and Parks and Rec and The Good Place fame will come on the show for a conversation about the Los Angeles Dodgers, who might just be the best baseball team of modern times. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is the illustrious Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, on pace for the greatest podcast season in history. Mm. Hello, Stefan. I'm a terrible illustrator, so I don't know if illustrious is the right word also with us this week. Not sure about her drawing skills, but back on the podcast after a four-year hiatus. It's Jonette Howard. Jonette's been a columnist and feature writer for Newsday, Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, The National Sports Daily, and ESPN. She's also the author of a book about tennis, The Rivals, Chris Evert versus Martina Navratilova. You can find her on Twitter at Jonette Howard. Welcome, Jonette. Thanks for having me. And we were just learning before we hit the record button about your first job as an eight-year-old. What was the name of the paper?
4: (laughs) The Broadway Dispatch. All right.
3: We'll be looking for back issues of that, but I imagine it was illustrious. Has it been digitized yet?
4: (laughs) I did illustrate it, though, definitely.
3: You did.
2: You're multimedia. Multimedia talent at eight. Yeah. Yeah. Unchanged
3: today. So I'm going to hand off to uh, Mr. Fatsis for the introduction for our first topic on Ezekiel Elliott.
2: A little over a year ago, newly drafted Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott was accused by a girlfriend of domestic violence. Prosecutors in Columbus, Ohio, where the alleged multiple assaults occurred, declined to bring criminal charges, citing, quote, conflicting and inconsistent information across all incidents, resulting in concern regarding the sufficiency of the evidence. The justice arm of the National Football League, however, did issue its own punishment. After what the league said was a year long investigation, Commissioner Roger Goodell last week suspended the 2016 Rookie of the Year for six games. Elliott is expected to to appeal and his lawyers say he can prove he did nothing wrong after the ray rice debacle the nfl made a big show of talking tough about how it would handle future domestic violence cases its actual behavior has been inconsistent lineman greg hardy convicted of beating up his ex-girlfriend was suspended for 10 games He wound up back in the league. Kicker Josh Brown, who admitted that he had repeatedly abused his ex-wife, was suspended for one game. Johnette, uh, do you think the NFL's punishment of Ezekiel Elliott is about the strength of the case against Elliott? Or is it about, once again, Goodell trying to send the I'm tough message?
4: I think what's colored this a little bit is that the Columbus district attorney didn't do Tiffany Thompson any favors by saying that he found conflicting and... and and uh... inconsistent evidence and not emphasizing the threshold of proof is different in a criminal case than it is in the case of the nfl because what the nfl investigators have turned around and said uh, publicly in a conference call was that they spoke to the columbus district attorney and he said he believed her but he didn't feel he could bring a case in columbus ohio because the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt is the highest in the justice system they also said that that they knew about the inconsistency in her statement, which was one thing, that she had asked a friend to corroborate it. Um, And if you know the history of women bringing domestic violence, I'm not defending it, but she clearly had a perception of what she was up against.
3: The thing that's really interesting to me here, Diana Moskowitz has done a lot of really good work on this for Deadspin um, since the allegations came out last year, and she points out, um, is what happened to Tiffany Thompson six times worse than what happened to Molly Brown? This is um, in terms of the length of the suspension handed down by the NFL. is three times as bad as what happened to Janae Rice. There is no way to escape the message sent here to victims. Play our game and we'll throw the book at a player. Ignore us and we'll blame you. It's just really interesting to me that the NFL has set up this entire... System independent from the criminal justice system, whereby players get punished or suspended or don't based on whether their alleged victims decide that it's in their interest to cooperate with this entirely private entity. And the individual decision that's made there about, does it make sense for me to share you know, my text messages to give a statement to the National Football League. I'd imagine that that's an incredibly fraught decision for somebody like Tiffany Thompson or Molly Brown or Janae Rice or anyone else.
4: I don't find the the um, argument compelling. The multiplier effect that is this, you know, three times worse than this or two times worse than this. I, I mean, I think my reaction to it is this is the way the system was supposed to work they have the footing um, that was given to them by the NFL Players Association to do it. And uh, after they examined everything that they had at their disposal, including the fact they spent those four nights together, they concluded that the bruises just didn't magically appear. And I think that's a sustainable argument, um, especially when combined with the fact that, you know, a few months later when he knew he was under investigation, he's pulling down somebody's shirt at a... St. Patrick's Day parade. So I can see where people might think that there's something behind the curtain that they would like to know more of. But again, in, in personnel matters, I don't think that's um, unusual. And well, I, I agree that,
3: that the NFL had the right to do this. As you've, yeah. as you've said, it's collectively bargained. I don't know if I'm comfortable with the fact that the NFL is putting itself in a, in the position of evaluating players' off-field behavior. I mean, this is a Football League they have no moral high ground to stand on here.
2: they do have the right to employ they do have the right to employ who they want to employ and yeah, to evaluate okay. who they want to employ based on that. The problem is the NFL really can 't ever get it right when it comes to potential criminal behavior by its employees because the standards in the criminal justice system differ so widely from the moral and I'm using air quotes here, standards that the NFL would like to apply to its employees. It's not in the getting it right business. It's not a court of law. It is in the image business. So it is going to try to find some middle ground. Um, And the problem becomes is when we don't trust the NFL's ability to find the middle ground, that we feel that they're always posturing because of their history of posturing
4: yeah but I think we're saying the same thing I, I I don't think that anybody should confuse the criminal process with this process, and to the extent that anyone does they're always going to be confused or disappointed or or maybe overly joyful about what happens they're they're, they're not going to ever give 100% certainty to any of this. But I do think as a business, they have the right to set the standards for what they want to do. And I, I would never defend them for, for not doing this with an eye on the box office. I think it's, it's exactly what you know, a lot of it is about. But it, they have to do something to protect their business in their minds. And that's what they're doing.
3: The thing that was also pretty remarkable and dramatic here is that Jerry Jones is seen, along with Robert Kraft, if you rewind a couple years ago, as Roger Goodell's biggest ally in the NFL. And Jones said, wasn't it just a couple days before the suspension came down? It's not like he was like holding up a you know newspaper and said like, Ezekiel Elliott will not be suspended. But he said it pretty clearly and dramatically in a way that suggested that he knew what he was talking about, the most powerful or one of the two most powerful owners In the league, I'm curious what you think, Stefan, what it means that Goodell has now publicly broken with maybe the two most powerful owners, the owners that he, you know, serves at the pleasure of. Right.
2: Well, the the, the question becomes whether those owners will choose to hold it against Roger Goodell in the future when the terms of his employment come up for review whenever that might be, whether because his contract needs renewal or because they decide that they don't want him to be commissioner anymore. And I guess you can praise Roger Goodell for not being afraid of taking on the New England Patriots and the Dallas Cowboys on personnel matters. Um, The Tom Brady suspension and the deflate gate investigation was a total circus. This is a little more clear-cut and in line with the image and the
3: behavior that the NFL has tried to present
2: since the Ray Rice case.
3: So, Elliot is a huge NFL star. He's not on the level of a Tom Brady, but he's on the next tier below that. Before the suspension, my sense was that the accusations against him, because no criminal charges had been brought didn't affect his public image really in any discernible way. It didn't make him less popular in Dallas, certainly. And the accusations against him, I think, were less well-known than, for example, the fact that he wears a crop top or like any of 10 other kind of fun facts about Ezekiel Elliott. I'm curious now, given that this is such... A prominent suspension. He's gonna miss such a huge part of the season. They're gonna to have to talk about it on national broadcasts that the Cowboys are going to be a huge part of the national um broadcasting scene in the NFL this year. They're gonna be on like most every week. What this is gonna to do to Ezekiel Elliott, because even after the suspension, there certainly hasn't been the same response as there was to Ray Rice after the video where he's just a persona non-grata. The Cowboys are gonna welcome him back. I don't think Cowboys fans are going to not wear his jersey or anything. I'm curious what you guys think about what the effects are going to be on his uh, career.
4: I don't think it'll last unless he has another problem. And um, they have warned him that he could face stiffer penalties, including banishment, which I would find hard to believe. But um, I I think that um, he's sort of on notice that if he has another misstep, the penalties will be worse. And Beyond that, if he doesn't do anything wrong, I think he will shed this pretty easily, especially if he plays well.
3: Stefan, what do you think about Elliott and his reputation? What's different here is that this is a
2: prominent player on a prominent team, and he is young. He is not going anywhere. Ray Rice had played in the NFL for several years. Teams could make a football argument that his skills didn't merit his being on a team anymore. This is the rookie of the year. I mean, he's he's a young, dynamic, future superstar. So, he's already a superstar. He's already a superstar. So whether this either... You know, if there's another incident, if there's any sort of behavior, this is another litmus test. And in the league, in the past, the league has answered this this question: If a player can play and he is at this level, he's going to get the benefit of the doubt and continue to be allowed to play.
3: But but what's odd here, right, is that the events in question happened a year ago, and there were other incidents afterwards: the St. Patrick's Day right. parade, the bar fight. Um, the only thing that's new here is that it took the NFL a year to decide on what its suspension was going to be. So the idea that like from this point forward, he, you know, this is what the real test is. If we actually rewind to what he's done, there was not any indication post alleged domestic violence that this, that that somehow chastened him or that he was a changed man.
4: Right. But I don't think that, um, I don't think that if we look at other sports in past history. I mean, Kobe Bryant was as big as it got. He was accused of rape, um, and it was midway through his career. Ben Roethlisberger accused of rape, and Kobe Bryant is now one of the people welcomed into the fold to host the uh, LA Olympics, which is sort of one of the most idealistic, you know, supposedly <laughs> idealistic sports ventures you can undertake. I mean, he's been welcomed back, and and I I hope that You're right. And I hope you guys are right. But I, I think history indicates that these guys seem to be able to move on. And I think that the fact that they have sort of any kind of fig leaf or plausible doubt um, allows them to. And, and the better they perform, the, the the more it helps them.
3: Right. If you're a star, they let you do it. That's a depressing place to end, but I think, uh, <laughs> but I think an apt one. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Okay, a quick announcement is we're going to be in the market for a new intern in the next couple of weeks. If you'd like to work with us starting in September and you're in D.C. and you're free on Mondays, drop us a line at at slate.com. And before we get to my main man, Sasha Zverev, a heads up that our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week uh, will be a conversation with Mike Schur of Fire Joe Morgan and The Good Place about how to be a responsible Boston sports fan in this day and age. It's a very difficult task. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year or $5 a month. If you do so, you can get a snazzy Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. In this amazing season for the now 36-year-old Roger Federer, Sunday's straight set loss to Sasha Zverev in Montreal represented a bunch of firsts. It was the first match that he's played all year, uh, Federer that is, where he didn't have a match point. It was also the first time he would lost the season to someone in the top 100. But this weekend's results said less about Federer, who looked very gimpy in the second set, than it does about the 20-year-old Sasha Zverev, who also won last week here in D.C. and has now won his second Masters 1000 tournament of the year, that's the tier right below the Grand Slams. Joining us now from Mason, Ohio, home of the next stop on the tennis circuit, is Ben Rothenberg, who writes about tennis for the New York Times, and is the co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. He also wrote about our young hero, Mr. Zverev, and the whole Zverev family, dog included, in the latest issue of the Print Quarterly Racket. Hey, Ben.
1: Hey, Josh, how you doing?
3: I'm good. Um, The top five men in the rankings, Ben, Rafael Nadal, Federer, Murray, Stan Wawrinka, Novak Djokovic. They're all old. (laughs) They're they're all now older than 30. Uh, Nadal and Federer having great years. The other three are definitely not. Djokovic and Wawrinka are both sitting out the rest of the season with injuries. Murray is missing this week's tournament in Cincinnati with hip problems. This is now the time on the podcast, Ben you'll recite some remarkable statistics about how Zverev is the first guy in like a decade to step up and challenge these geezers.
1: Yeah, so that's exactly right. There's a long generation that seems sort of lost in men's tennis at this point. People basically born after Novak Djokovic. So Djokovic was born in May of 1987. And so people born after him, so from June of 1987 all the way through up until Sasha Zverev was born in april of 1998 those guys have done nothing it's like a nine-year stretch has produced very little top talent when you look at it through most metrics like master's titles is the main one sasha zverev has now won two of them those all the people all men in the world born in that nine and a half year stretch combined have won one which was marin Cilic finally <laughs> won one last year he was born in 1988 and they've won a couple slams. Chilich won a U.S. Open and Del Potro, who's in that window, won a U.S. Open. But they just haven't been consistently challenging at all. Guys like Grigor Dimitrov, Kani Shikori, Milos Ronich all in there. And there's, you know, people have come up different solutions for why this is happening. But Zverev seems Zverev's arrival, I think, really nicely bookends what I know you've referred to and I've referred to before on this podcast as generations suck which some people more charitably call the Lost Boys or something. That just sounds sort of strange and <laughs> mythical to me. I think, genera- Lost I think generation Boys is more, is more charitable? <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, different, there's different names for it, but I think my name is probably the more uh, descriptive one. I didn't come up with it myself. It was a, a fan-created nickname. But so I, Zverev,
2: I Zverev is German, Russian parents, and I think what really distinguishes him here and, and the reason for his success is that growing up, he played field hockey. He didn't just play <laughs> didn't tennis. Play some- he played field hockey yeah. and, and soccer, too, but field hockey really stands out.
1: Yeah, it's a, a decently popular men's sport in yes. Europe, which never really caught on in, in the U.S. for whatever reason. And it's hard to imagine him now because field hockey is so much about doubling over and being stooped, and he's so awkwardly gangly. Like, I'm, As much as <laughs> he's a world-class <laughs> athlete, I'm not sure he could, like, touch his toes or anything right now. Yeah, those now. field
2: hockey sticks are pretty small. He said in, the, in a profile in The Independent, I was actually quite good at all of those sports. My field hockey team were German champions. And my football team were Hamburg champions.
3: Yes, shocking yes. that one of the world's greatest athletes would be good at other sports. at other sports. Incredible, yeah. <laughs> John. Ad, what do you see when you watch Sasha Zverev play?
4: Well, I think the two things are really impressive. There's his size, and uh, it, it sort of separates him. As Ben said, he's six six, and uh, you know the wingspan, the serve, the the um, he, he always had a great two handed. He always had a great backhand, but his forehand. Um, is really sort of getting better as far as accuracy. And um, he pe- he plays a power baseline game, and he uh, he sort of has the attitude, too, even though he's only 20. He was talking about, he, I love this quote. He said, I think I showed I can play with the big guys already. I'm not a in-the-future kind of guy. I'm trying to be right now. And, you know, other guys have kind of said it, but they haven't done it. This has been a, a breakout year for him, five titles. He beat Djokovic, he, be- he beat Federer, he beat Nadal. Um, had a had a four set or uh, five set four hour match in Australia. So I mean this this could be when you look um there have been a lot of pretenders. I always thought Ronich um was overrated. Um I don't think team has the physical talent to match Sevrev. I think he looks like the best guy in a long time.
2: And do you think that there is something about tennis players that we recognize who the next Grand Slam uh contenders champions are gonna be. Um, is there something about Zverev's game that that says to you, this is the guy that can win multiple Grand Slams?
1: It's it's tough to go too crazy. I mean I saw one tennis writer today put the over under on number of grand slams you think Zverev will win at eleven. Which seems insane for Jesus. somebody who's never made a who's never made yeah, a grand slam quarterfinal in his life. Yeah. I, I I understand hype, and that's the thing in terms of his potential. I and mean, there are still question marks about Saber. 0 hasn't, like I just said, hasn't been that great at best of five matches. I think he's only like eleven and ten in his career in best of five, and it's only just now Wimbledon for the first time made it to even the fourth round of a grand slam. So there's work to be done there for sure. Um, but there's a lot of natural excitement and he's somebody who I think people really sort of trust the stock he's from. I mean, he's from a tennis playing family. Both of his parents were top players in the Soviet union. They weren't allowed to travel outside the Soviet union much due to restrictions back then, but they were great players within it. And his brother was also on tour and is now a top 25 player. He's about 10 years older, Misha Zverev. And so he's been around the tour a lot and really seems to have a very good head on his shoulders and knows the landscape of this i mean people older players remember him from when he was just a little kid tagging around his older brother and now he's so he just seems very familiar with this he's been acculturated or acclimatized to the tour landscape much better than your average new coming player and i think because of that people have a lot more faith that he won't fall into some of the common pitfalls of what derails young prospects
3: All right, I want to play a clip from his victory speech in Washington, D.C. We've talked about uh, the guy's family. We've talked about his playing style. Let's get into personality. So this was um, during a long speech where he he basically thanked everyone in the stadium individually. And then he got to his mother who was holding the family dog. So have that in mind as you listen to this.
4: Then uh, my mom, who's, who's with the dog. Um, thanks. <laughs> thanks for taking care of him, uh, walking him during my matches in the, in the heat that we, we've been in here. Um, you know, he can't sit through two-hour matches, so he, he's a very important part of all of our lives. So you take great care of him. You know, after you took uh, care of us for so many years, me and my brother, Um, you know, you, you taught us how you taught us this game from the, from an early age. And I think it's quite amazing. And you have, you have a lot to do with this, what I'm doing on court right now.
3: Two things there, John, at first, it's interesting that he was coached by his mom, like Andy Murray, and he seems to have like a non crazy family. The second is the guy like gave a really long speech about his dog. Uh, he seems to have like a fun personality.
4: Yeah, and you know, and it's it's kind of one of those things that reminds you. There's nothing better sometimes than seeing somebody innocent, you know, because they still have the sort of wonder, and and uh, they're still capable of being awestruck or, or um, openly, you know, humble or, or excited or all those things. And and that's what it it seemed like to me. I mean, he he looked like he was a 25 year old slam winner when he was thumping Federer in that match and then when he was done he sounded 20 again and, and sort of amazed or proud or you know all of that about what he had done and um it's kind of nice to see and it, it actually reminds you a little bit um of Federer in the fact that um Federer can get kind of rambling too sometimes and uh has toned it down in, in recent years. But when Federer first started, he, you know, he used to fall down and sob every time he won. <laughs> so it's, it's fun. It's fun to, to watch this guy uh, if he is the next great thing.
2: I kind of felt like Federer recognized that he was watching someone like him when he was younger during the trophy presentation yesterday. I mean, Federer then stuck around and was grinning. From ear to ear, when oh, Zverev yeah. was talking, he Zverev, no, I, Zverev at I one point said, I'm sorry you didn't win Montreal yeah. this year. Hopefully you have many more years to come back here, and I'm sure you'll get it.
4: It's yeah. hilarious. That's, that's one of those public speaking things when after you say it, you go, what am I saying? Like, what am I saying? You know, like, it was, it was very funny. It was very funny.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think Zverev is a, is a very well-liked guy within the tour. He's got a lot of... Comfort and, and confidence in himself. But he does have a bit of an edge to him sometimes. He's not. He can be um, a bit of a temper on court, and he can get kind of snappy in a sort of Andy Roddick-ish way with reporters in press conference if he doesn't like the uh, you know assumption of your question or things like that. So he he does have he is engaged in things in a way. that I think it's pretty good. He's not always sunshine and roses, and he can come off sometimes as uh arrogant. A lot of fans have complained, but he's backing it up, and there's and there's a lot of personality to like there, and in a time. When a lot of players in the post-Federer generation tried to be very sanitized and safe in, in their remarks and everything, he's got he shows a little bit more, which is which is good to see.
3: All right, let's end with a comment on the Zverev generation. Uh, Denis Shapovalov made it to the semis in Canada. He beat Rafael Nadal in a great match, the match of the tournament. He's only 18. Um, is there sort of a character? to this generation, if the other one is generation suck, is there this like younger group? Are they coherent in any way? Are they friends? Are they challenging each other? Is there gonna be like a dynamic there that's gonna be interesting to
1: follow? That's a good question. The main trend of them If you look at the ones on the top of this next gen Milan race, which is a 21 and under tournament, the ATP is hosting this year for their young guys to try to promote them. The main commonality is a lot of them are Russian in roots. Shapovalov's parents are Russian. He was born in Tel Aviv but moved to Canada when he was an infant. Zverev's parents are from the Soviet Union. Other guys up in there: uh, Karen Kachanov, who's a Russian guy; Daniil Medvedev, also Russian. Andrei Rublev, also Russian. There's another one a little further down, Sasha Bublik, who's a Russian who got bought by Kazakhstan and now plays for Kazakhstan. Um, So a lot of Russians in there. And they're also a generation that I think grew up watching tennis in a time when Federer was dominating, was when they sort of first picked up rackets for the most part. And so they largely, to paint with a broad brush, play pretty stylish tennis. There's more one-handed backhands than there were in maybe the generation before them. So I think it's overall a pretty aesthetically pleasing generation that should hopefully, fingers crossed, serve the sport pretty well.
3: Ben Rothenberg writes about uh, tennis for The New York Times. He's the co-host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast. Also wrote about the Zverevs for uh, the magazine Racket. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Josh. And Jeanette, we're going to say goodbye to you as well. Jeanette Howard uh, is a writer- of a uh, great resume from, Alaska, the early yes. di- from the early days as an eight year old all the <laughs> way up through uh, ESPN and The National and Newsday and The Washington Post. And you should check out her book, The Rivals, on Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. Jeanette, thank you so much.
4: Thank you, guys.
3: The Los Angeles Dodgers are 83-34, and which is a lot of wins and not a lot of losses. Their 709 winning percentage would be eighth best of all time, just behind the 1927 New York Yankees, who, when you talk about the greatest teams of all time, people often will say, 1927 New York Yankees. Uh, Maybe they'll say 2017 L.A. Dodgers now. They're um, on pace for 115 wins, which would be just behind the 116 and 46 Seattle Mariners of 2001, which are not usually a team that gets mentioned because they didn't even make the World Series. Also, um, that would be just behind the 1906 Chicago Cubs who finished a crazy 116 and 36. Joining us to discuss this year's Dodgers and their greatness is Mike Schur, who will do nothing else in his life that will compare to his run as Ken Tremendous at the internet weblog, Mm -hmm. Fire Joe Morgan. But he's also done some pretty good things on TV as the co-creator of Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and the creator of The Good Place, which is coming back for second season in September, right when rosters expand.
0: That's right. That's that's why they do it that way. They want they want to time the new season to right when the uh, the youngsters come up from AAA. Uh, hello, Mike. Good to have hello. you. Thanks um, for having me.
3: Yeah. And looking at the Dodgers, um, Lindsay Adler had a really good piece on Deadspan about where all these dudes came from and what their background is. And reminded me of the Red Sox circa when they combined having a massive amount of money with being smart. Um, there, There is a parallel here because you've got guys that were drafted by the team. We can get into all these individuals in a bit, but you've got international signings. You've got guys that they got for nothing. Um, you've got you know, now you Darvish, who they got at the trade deadline. This is a team that has used every tool at their disposal, thanks to the fact that they have billions of dollars.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yes, they were a lumbering giant for a long time, because the new ownership group is very, very wealthy, and very desperate to sort of make a splash and, uh, and reclaim the greater Los Angeles territory. And as a result, they did a lot of not smart things. Um, Very famously, they traded for Adrian Gonzalez and Josh Beckett uh, from the Red Sox. With the Red Sox, basically dumped, I don't know how many. Well, ultimately, it was you know hundreds of. <laughs> Adrian Gonzalez is still under that same contract. This happened years ago, and it's still the same contract he was under. They got Red Sox got out from under hundreds of millions of dollars of not dead payroll, but but unhealthy payroll, just because the Dodgers new ownership group wanted to kind of do something splashy. They no longer do stuff like that. They are now operating from a position of incredible strength and wealth, and they are smart, and they're doing smart things like getting you Darvish at the trade deadline. And as a result, you have in the Dodgers almost exactly what you had in the Red Sox uh, when John Henry took over, which is a team with a very large fan base, a tremendous amount of money, and now a really smart baseball operations team that has put together a team that has given up the fewest runs in in all of baseball by far and has scored like the fourth most runs in baseball. And as a result, they're 50 games over 500 in mid-August. And it it was only a matter of time. As long as any smart group of people took over this team – all of the pieces were already in place, all of the the size of the market and the size of the TV deal and the a desire for people to play in Los Angeles. It was it was only a matter of time until it all came together, and now it's all come together. Yeah,
2: it's kind of remarkable that the Dodgers, given all of those factors that you just cited, had been so mediocre for so long and so inept right. for so long. And look, a lot of that does have to do with ownership and the ownership of the Dodgers prior to, the, to this group. What's the name of the company that owns it's them? It's
3: the Guggenheim Group, which yeah. I think Mike a firm is what you would call a
0: fictional rich owner of a baseball team? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's the moneybags group. Yeah. The
2: moneybags group. The previous owner was Frank McCourt, uh, the real estate guy, and uh, his wife, Jamie McCourt. Parking lot magnate. Parking lot magnate. Mm -hmm. And let's be clear that they fucked up the Dodgers and they got out. As, like crazy richer than they already were. Frank McCourt was forced to sell the team amid this nasty divorce from Jamie McCourt. He just bought like Olympic Marseille and Trump just nominated Jamie McCourt as ambassador to Belgium. Shouldn't someone <laughs> be punished here?
0: There is a a, a, a true, if you want to truly follow the trajectory of rich white dude in America, follow Frank McCourt because he bought the team. He essentially had no cash. The entire—he bought the Dodgers on a credit card. He put down, I think—I literally think he put down $10 million of actual money on a billion-dollar purchase. Then he ran the team like an ATM where he was—he used the team jet to fly himself around. He had a—famously had like a hairstylist on call all the time to just give him haircuts, I guess, every (laughs) day or something. He ruined the team— Uh, The the horrific, he cut security around the stadium. There was that horrific thing where a Giants fan was beaten in the parking lot and almost lost his life. He was, he went through a divorce. He was forced to sell the team and essentially more than doubled his money. And by the way, I believe got to keep certain rights to certain parking lots surrounding the stadium and certain lands. So he even, he's continuing to profit off of the new ownership group because Major League Baseball was so humiliated by having, uh, sold the team to him that they were desperate to get out from under the the deal that he was running the team. So I mean it it is the ultimate failing upward story that I think in the history of sports. And he's yeah, he's continuing now to share in the wealth of the team's success, which is risk that's exactly what you don't want moving, when you have an owner like that.
3: Moving on to the current roster of the Dodgers to to happier, happier subjects. So you mentioned Adrian Gonzalez, he's on the disabled list. Clayton Kershaw who is the guy on the roster who has a Hall of Fame trajectory, also on the disabled list, although he's been around for most of the year and has put up his usual amazing numbers. But the lineups that they're putting out now are, as I was talking about in the intro, this really remarkable blend of guys from, you know, acquired every possible way you can acquire a player. So Corey Seager and Cody Bellinger, are guys that they drafted and developed and are two of the best young hitters in all of baseball. Um, There are international signings like uh, Kenta Maeda, the Japanese pitcher, and Yasiel Puig uh, from Cuba. There are guys that they got via trade, Chris Taylor and Alex Wood. And their best hitter, Justin Turner, they got for nothing because he just wasn't good enough for the Mets. He just didn't have the kind of (laughs) bat that you really need to succeed in Queens. Um, Is there anything um, in particular, Mike, that you've noticed with this lineup, any of these players that have stood out to you? Or is it more just that there are just no holes at all in this roster?
0: It's It's both, I would say. Justin Turner is kind of the key to the team. Justin Turner, like you said, was not good enough to make another mediocre major league roster. He found a home in Los Angeles, but he could have gotten away last year. He signed a new deal. They it, the smart move on paper was to let him walk or to trade him, frankly, because he's not a spring chicken. He's thirty-two, and it was unclear whether his uh, relative, uh, relatively speaking, success at the plate was real. But they signed him, and they they love him there, and they signed him to a new deal. Can he's I interrupt
3: you just so people oh. can can picture while we're having this conversation? This is a guy sure. with like a flowing mane. Of red hair, like a a really stocky thirty two year old with like the reddest hair in all of baseball. Please continue.
0: And an and an enormous beard, a beard where I went to the game yesterday with uh, some friends and our sons, and we sat in the upper deck, and it was like, uh, it, I mean, it was like he was glowing. <laughs> you know, you could see him. You can pick him out anywhere on the field. And he hit a opposite field three run homer uh, to right center last night, and a deep homer to left field in the same game. Somehow or another, he he's having his best year by far, and uh, and he he's kind of like the anchor of the lineup and the kind of heart and soul of the team. He is to the Dodgers what you know I don't know Johnny Damon was to the to that Red Sox team, or what you know Edgar Martinez was to the dot to the Mariners, and the, so it's it's not one thing. It's like these young rookies. See, everybody knew Seeger was a star. He was a he was a you know he's been ticketed for greatness since he was in high school. And Bellinger was a little bit is uh, a little bit of a surprise um, in terms of how well he's done. If he in continues degree. on the same in degree, yes. In fact, Aaron Judge got all the high uh, headlines in the first half of the season, but he's been slumping. And if it, the season's trajectory sort of continue by the end of the year, Bellinger will have had a better year than Aaron Judge, which is kind of crazy to think about. So it's not one thing. I mean, the other thing is no one can hit their pitching. Since Kershaw went down, the the team is fifteen and three and the team ERA is in the low twos. And that's absurd. You can't lose the best pitcher in the last twenty-five years in baseball and have your team go fifteen and three with like a two forty ERA. Their bullpen, which has been a little bit of a problem for them in the playoffs recently, is now way better than it used to be. They have these guys that you don't know if you don't follow the team, like Pedro Baez, who is you know f- giving them 45 or 50 innings with like a whip in the low ones. They have like three or four of those guys. And then they have Kenley Jansen, who, by the way, also could have been lost at the end of last year, and they re-signed him. So they just it, they're, it, the organization as a whole is just kind of on a roll. Every decision they make in terms of who did let go, who to trade, who to pick up at the trade deadline, who to re-sign. They just seem like they're making all the right decisions and the team looks unstoppable.
2: Right, Josh, you mentioned Justin Turner. Mike, you mentioned Kenley Jansen and the decision to re-sign these guys. And Jared Diamond did a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the combination of money and smarts. And a lot of that can be attributed to Andrew Friedman, who came from the the Tampa Bay Rays, and Farhan Zaidi, who worked for Billy Bean and the Oakland Athletics, and bringing this more holistic, let's spend our money wisely and not just sign free agents and expensive guys approach to baseball. But what makes the Dodgers able to do this is the same thing that made The late 1990s Yankees, so powerful. They can afford to make mistakes and afford to compensate for those mistakes. So the Dodgers had an opening day payroll of $240 million, which was like $30 million um, more than whoever is number two now. Is it the Red Sox? Is it the yeah,
0: is the the I don't think I don't think it's the Red Sox, but yeah, yeah it's it's one of those teams.
2: Regardless, um, they have the ability to make these kinds of mistakes and not worry about it, so they can pay 100 mil, $110 dollars in DL money, or they can pay fifty million dollars in dead money, which isn't even near the top of baseball, but it doesn't impact the team as much because it's a smaller percentage of the overall payroll than it is for other teams.
3: Opening day payroll was Dodgers two hundred forty two million, then Yankees. Two hundred and one million and then Red Sox at
0: just under two hundred million, so the parsimonious <laughs> yes. red sox a lean a lean two hundred million, yeah, well, the yeah, but that's the other thing is that the the a lot of the mistakes that you're talking about were made before this group was in place sure. adrian Adrian Gonzalez makes a lot of money. He makes north of twenty one million a year, I believe, and he doesn't need to be on the team. I mean, he's a great hitter, right. and he's a very good fielder and he i don't think that they're sad that he's essentially a backup for baseman at this point but if they if they could cut him if this were the, if this were pro football they would have cut him a long time ago because well, they, they did
2: release he, Carl Crawford and they're still paying that's him 20 right, million that's dollars that's
0: right that's right Crawford also part of that crazy deal that they uh, that they get, they got the Red Sox out from under an insane Carl Con- Crawford contract so they you know they have probably 50 or 60 million coming off the books of players they don't need in the next couple of years. So you're right that they that their uh, ability to make mistakes is far greater than most teams. In fact, maybe all teams. But also this group isn't making those mistakes, at least not yet. They're they are papering over the mistakes of a previous regime. And it's one shudders to think how good the team will be when they shed 60 or 70 million dollars of payroll they are not currently using and still have the exact same team they're putting on the field every day.
2: It does seem like there's even a better that there's a better environment around the team. And I know that's an intangible that you expect in teams that are succeeding. But you're really not hearing much lately about how Yasiel Puig isn't serious about baseball or isn't serious about life. It seems like something has changed in the culture of the team, too.
0: Yes, and that thing, frankly, is that Yasiel Puig hits like eighth or ninth in the lineup. He doesn't have to be the guy. They're not. They're not. Their success is not dependent on Yasiel Puig being like a paragon of of like professionalism. So that alone is such a huge change. And they have, you know, if you think about how, their best players, who are, who are the best players on the team every day? Well, right now it's probably Bellinger. Second is probably Corey Seager. Third is probably Justin Turner. or Maybe those two are flipped. But you know, Chris Taylor's been on an insane tear. And in every any given day, Jock Peterson might be the best player on the team. Yasmani Grandal homered again last night. He's been he's a become very good catcher. They've got a their closer is the best closer in the National League. They have the best starting pitcher in baseball. Puig is an afterthought on this team. And that is exactly the way that you succeed with the Puig is you don't make him your cleanup hitter and the only guy that anyone's coming to the stadium to see because the tension between the fans who loved him. And the team, who was kind of getting sick of all of his antics, that tension's gone now because the te- if Puig hits a home run, Puig does something great, awesome. That's gravy. In the 2015 NL Division Series,
3: the Mets beat the Dodgers in five games. Um, the Mets went on to the World Series. And in that offseason, they had the decision to make around Daniel Murphy, and they did not sign that guy. They got Neil Walker, who— um, if you looked at the stats was not like that wasn't like that crazy of a move, but that is the the kind of what I see as the divergence between these two franchises is that the Mets their front office is not stupid, but they have ownership who like post madoff fleecing. <laughs> is not willing to spend any money and they have to get everything exactly right. They have no reinforcements to come in when like all of their starting pitchers get hurt. They have no depth and they decided, you know, we're not going to spend the, you know, couple tens of millions of dollars to sign Daniel Murphy off of a career year. They made the exact opposite decision that the Dodgers made. The Dodgers knowing that, hey, if this like Justin Turner thing doesn't work out, we've got like, four or five guys coming up from the minor leagues. We've got another 50 or 60 million we can spend on somebody else. Like, that's not something that other franchises, you know, the Mets or or anybody else, but particularly the fucking Mets, uh, are going <laughs> to be able to compete with. My final question for you, Mike, is Fangraph says there's about a 20% chance that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series. The Astros are not far behind, and the Astros actually have an argument for being the best offense in the history of baseball this year, Um, it doesn't seem like the Dodgers, the trajectory of the franchise or its greatness will be at all affected by what happens in the postseason this year. But what's your sense of, you know, going to the game this weekend, um, being around these notoriously fair-weather Dodgers fans? Like, how much are people, like, really putting all of their eggs in the in the Dodgers postseason basket?
0: I think a fair amount. Um, the desire for a deep run, uh, you know, they've won four straight division titles, and they've essentially been eliminated before it felt like they should have been eliminated. That Mets team that beat them two years ago was a sort of team of destiny. A little bit, they had those four great starting pitchers. They were sort of unhittable. Um, and they just sort of suffocated the Dodgers offense. The Dodgers offense is way better now than it was. Their pitching is better. Their bullpen is better. There is one gigantic question. That gigantic question is Clayton Kershaw, because not only is Kershaw hurt with a back injury, he's had a history of back injuries, and this is a different back injury, which I don't know. Nobody knows whether that's good or bad. It's not the same back injury. Uh, but he has this utterly inexplicable kind of track record of mediocrity in the playoffs. And so that is the that's the gigantic question mark and the scary thing that's lingering out there for everybody is will will Clayton Kershaw somehow screw this up because the team like I said is 15 and 3 without him and obviously they can't wait for him to get back. He's the best pitcher in baseball. But they it does feel like everyone expects this team to at least make the World Series. And if you look at the landscape of the National League, There's no team in the central that scares you. The only team in the East that scares you is the nationals. and Now Bryce Harper's knees all screwed up, but nobody, even, even if everybody's healthy, there's no national league team that should come close to this Dodger team at all. And so everyone expects there to be bunting around the stadium, uh, come late October. And the idea that they might win the world series is, has been around. I mean, people have been talking about it since May. So I think the egg, a lot of those eggs are in that basket. And, and the, if they don't uh, make a deep run, if they don't get to the World Series, I think people would be really disappointed.
2: My favorite Dodger fact, Cody Bellinger's dad, Clay, former major leaguer, played for the Greek national team at the 2004 Olympics. Clearly that's <laughs> central to the Dodgers' run. This year. Thank you, Stephen. Wait, I'm yeah. sorry.
0: That, that's your favorite fact <laughs> about <my> baseball? <laughs> fact.
2: About Cody Bellinger. Stephen Fair enough.
3: is... Uh, an idiosyncratic dude. Uh, Mike sure was Ken Tremendous of Fire Joe Morgan. He is the creator of The Good Place. And remember, if you just see a bunch of like random guys on a major league field, it seems like maybe they're just like going to the bullpen a lot because they just have 40 people on the roster. That's when you should, it should go off in your head like The Good Place is probably on television. I should, <laughs> I should hit record on the DVR. Mike, thank you so much for joining
0: us. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Now it
3: is time for Afterballs, and I realized that we made a major omission during our Sasha's Varev segment. We discussed the dog at great length, but we did not name the dog. We didn't name him either. Alexander is his real name, not Sasha. But the point I was making is that we didn't name the dog. The dog's name is Luvik. So we invited Ben Rothenberg back on to share some Luvik facts. Uh, ben is, as I mentioned earlier, at the tournament in Cincinnati. <laughs> and it's possible that people will start cheering in the background if Luvik walks past. So just keep that in mind. Ben, hello.
1: Yes, hello. Luvik does have a very big cult following. So that is entirely possible. He's sort of the mascot of his very family. He got his name Luvik, uh, which means a little lion, apparently in Russia, And he has big floppy hair, much like his Youngest owner, Sasha Zverev. Um, And yeah, he's a a popular member of the family for sure. His mom, uh, Sasha's mom, not Livick's mom, I don't know where (laughs) Livick's birth mother is, but Sasha's mom uh, will take him for walks and play with him to get away from the courts where Sasha is playing because she gets way too nervous watching her youngest son play. She's fine watching her older son play, Misha. (laughs) She's no problem with that, but she can't watch Sasha play for some reason. So she kind of openly plays favorites or something, which is amusing. All right, with
3: that assist from Ben Rothenberg, Stefan, what is your Luvik? Luvik Zverev or just Luvik? Whatever you prefer, canine or otherwise.
0: Well,
2: my favorite photo of the weekend, Josh, was from the World Track Championships, and it showed Yin leading Yang in the 50-kilometer women's race walk. Yin and Yang, both of China, finished second and third. There were only seven entrants in the race. It was the first 50K women's at the Worlds, and it wasn't added until last month, which explains the small field. A main proponent of the women's 50K is an American, Erin Talcott-Taylor, the women had been capped at 20K with no sign of evening out the events. Talcott Taylor in the past had petitioned to allow women to compete in the men's 50K. And last year, the International Race Walk Federation allowed it. She competed with four men on the U.S. team in the World Racewalking Team Championships in Rome. In London on Sunday, though, Talcott Taylor suffered the fate of many a race walker about 10 kilometers into the 50K. She was disqualified. And that happens a lot in race walking where there are two rules enforced by judges on the looped course. One is that the supporting leg has to be totally straight from contact with the ground until the body passes in front of it. The other rule is that the walker's back toe can't leave the ground until the front heel has touched the ground. Here's the rule. Race walking is a progression of steps so taken that the walker makes contact with the ground so that no visible parens to the human eye close parens loss of contact occurs. Now the key phrase there is to the human eye, and that's basically because every elite race walker is almost never totally in contact with the ground. This is known as contact loss. The best walker loses contact with the ground for 30 to 40 milliseconds per stride, and we know this because of something called video cameras, which when played in what's called slow motion, easily capture race walkers in midair. And that's led critics to say that racewalking is bullshit because the walkers are actually running. And everyone who sees one of these videos for the first time thinks that they're Zapruder. There's a 2015 thread on the message board Let's Run titled The Video That Ends Racewalking. Our friend Ross Tucker in South Africa on Sunday posted a 45-second clip of a pack of men in the 20K race at the World's quote, spot the walker, hashtag, yes, it is a trick question, quote, to the naked eye, end quote, rule is a laugh. And yeah, every one of those dudes in the clip looks like he's jogging. The guy in front, a Brit, was actually DQ'd a minute after the sequence. But the problem with the sport isn't the walker's feet, it's the judge's eyes, or actually human eyes. According to a 2013 study titled Detection of Illegal Race Walking, A Tool to Assist Coaching and Judging, humans are capable of processing movements down to six one-hundredths of a second. The Australian study, which was published in the journal Sensors. I know you subscribe, Joss, Sensors. They tested a sensor attached to the small of a runner's back with the steps filmed by a high-speed camera. In an analysis of 80 steps, 57 were found to be illegal to have some airtime. And that's 71%. That's a lot. There's talk of adopting some sort of hang time detection technology in the sport. Tucker points out that that would force runners to slow down a lot. Others say it would kill the sport because no one will ever be able to stay on the ground all the time. But that misses the point. The answer isn't to have technology require part of a foot on the ground at all times. It's to apply the to the human eye standard, to the technology, allow contact loss up to what would be visible to the naked eye. I am not the first to suggest this. The problem is introducing and applying it. Another problem is that it would eliminate one of the weirdest judging systems in sports. A bunch of judges on the course holding up yellow and red paddles with their calls then relayed, sometimes by bicycle, to the chief judge. Three red cards and you're out. But the runners then have to check the scoreboard to see if they were the ones who were actually carded. On the other hand, technology would protect racewalking against the ethics police who decry the sport as a fraud. And this is important because racewalking
3: is just too funny looking to kill. They need to implement the golf rule where people watching on TV can just call in and say, I think that guy's running. Yeah. And you know what that would be?
2: I think everybody's running. <laughs> Everybody's it would, running.
3: It would be a busy switchboard.
2: It would be a very uh, very small group at the finish line. Group of zero.
3: Josh, what is your Luvik Zverev? <laughs> UCLA quarterback Josh Rosen has been touted as a top NFL prospect and maybe the best quarterback prospect in the college game ever since he enrolled in school in 2015. Rosen was a freshman All-American that year but only played seven games due to a shoulder injury in 2016. Before his junior year, which will likely be his last before signing a pro contract, Rosen talked to Bleacher Report's Matt Hayes about, among other things, how to balance his sport and his schoolwork. Um, This was a question from Hayes referring to Rosen's injury. Look at the bright side. You got a chance to heal, maybe catch up on school. Rosen's response was, Don't get me started. I love school, but it's hard. It's cool because we're learning more applicable stuff in my major, economics, not just the prerequisite stuff that's designed to filter out people, but football really dents my ability to take some classes that I need. There are a bunch of classes that are only offered one time. There's a class this spring I had to take, but there's a conflict with spring football, so... And then the reporter says, so football wins out? Rosen's response, well, you can say that. He went on for... A little bit, and the kind of pull quote that came out of this that was reported everywhere was, Look, football and school don't go together. This is an incredibly uncontroversial statement um, said in slightly different terms by Ohio State quarterback Cardale Jones, who famously tweeted a few years ago, We ain't come here to play school. Jones tweeted at Rosen, to express, I guess it wasn't quite his support, but to express his, uh, you know, fellow feeling, saying, chill bro, play school. No matter how you phrase it, it is undeniable that college football players get tracked into specific majors so they stay eligible, that coaches, no matter how enlightened, are always going to prioritize practice and film study over Kim Lab or whatever else it is that people do in college these days that does not involve football. I'm a little bit out of touch. But the coach of UCLA, Jim Mora, stands out as one of the more execrable figures in college football, in coaching. This guy pisses me off on a yearly basis. And his response To Josh Rosen's statement about the efforts to balance school and football were entirely in character for him. This is what he said When you express opinions, you create perceptions, you create controversy. There are those that agree with you and those who don't agree with you, and you have to be willing to deal with the consequences. Do I know for a fact if his opinions are valid? No. I know this. At UCLA, according to Forbes magazine, which did an article that combined athletic and academic excellence, ranked number two behind Stanford, blah, 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 then I went on to say about his relationship with Rosen, I just talk very frankly with him as a father would talk to his son more than anything. I try to respect his opinion, but yet still try to explain to him why he needs to rethink, not necessarily his position on things, but how to express. The part of maturing for Josh is I don't think his opinions have changed. I think that the way he's expressing them has changed. He understands that NFL decision-makers are looking at all of that. That's part of the evaluation process, and that's something that I've really tried to get across. Uh, So last year, Rosen also made news, uh, posted an Instagram image of himself wearing a fuck Trump hat while he was on a Trump golf course. Also, UCLA made a deal with Under Armour, $280 million deal, and Rosen posted on social media. We're still amateurs, though. Gotta love nonprofits. NCAA. This is a smart dude. Mm-hmm. Socially conscious, got good and interesting opinions. He's majoring in economics. Totally valid. So here's what uh, Mora had to say last year about Josh Rosen's comments. UCLA, he said, has a long history of socially aware students who were not afraid to rattle the cage a little bit. This is according to a Los Angeles Times article from 2016. But Mora added, "It is now a quote different world where anything Rosen says will be analyzed and sometimes overanalyzed. So he should be socially responsible." Well, I guess I, I thought that's what he was doing. Uh, Mora said he should be more like Tom Brady oh, and God. Peyton Manning and Troy Aikman rather than, for example, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Bill Walton, the UCLA athletes that came before uh, Rosen. This is very upsetting to you, Stefan, oh, right? God. Mora is the worst kind of college football coach. And this is the worst match of a coach and player that you could possibly imagine. A guy who, its he coached in the NFL, but this is like the protect the shield mantra. He does not give t- two shits about a guy being honest or about saying things that are true. All he cares about is image And what, you know, what you say, how it might reflect on yourself and on your team. And this is totally in character for Jim Mora. In 2015, he was caught on camera at a practice in front of reporters telling Rosen that, you know, he wasn't in high school anymore. That's why you haven't been named the starter. He mocked him as the anointed one. And then after practice, when he was asked by people in the press why he had done that in front of the media, um, why he would balled out his player like that, this is what Jim Morris said. Got Jerry today. You saw it. It's just part of the deal, you know? I mean, it, it's uh, like I told him after practice. I'm, am I an asshole? Yeah, I'm an asshole. Okay, out here, I'm an asshole. Nope, but, and, sorry for my
2: language, but I'm an asshole because... That's my job to make sure that they get the most out of what God gave them and protect all that they've worked for and all that they're working towards. And so uh, I'm not going to let anyone go through the motions at any time. It with- in
3: 2012, T.J. Simers wrote a column in the L.A. Times about how Mora had dressed down a sports information assistant. This is quoting from the Simers column in front of the whole team for allowing a TV cameraman to stand in the wrong place. In doing so, he gave the sports information assistant an earful of some very impressive obscenities, which, of course, the young players would expect from their demanding leader. This is the kind of man that's telling Josh Rosen that he needs to mature and that he needs to think about how his actions come across.
2: Why is it so hard for universities or team owners to just say, we're not going to employ an asshole like this? Why is that so hard? It's as if there's a – is there
3: a shortage of football coaches
2: in in America? I don't think so.
3: He is really awful. He just makes – I apologize for the cliche, but he makes my blood boil. (laughs) I just have such a visceral dislike for this guy. And to stand up to – Josh Rosen like this and tell him that he needs to mature. There's just like so much hypocrisy that happens in the NCAA. There's like a fundamental hypocrisy there. But to see this particular person say that to this other particular person is just so galling. It's unbelievable. I'm going to read the credits now, but just I want you to know that I find it galling, America. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Slate Money. It's a weekly roundup of the most important stories from the worlds of business and finance. It's Felix Salmon, Jordan Weissman, Anna Shamansky. Last week, they talked about pink slime and Disney's Netflix deal and open seating plans. And I say no, yes and no to those three things. Shows Weekly posts Saturday mornings. You can find it at slate.com slash money. I'm Josh Levine for Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.